Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. My name is Jeremy Howard, pastoring at Orchard Hills Bible Church in Payson, Utah. Thank you so much for joining me today. And if you're watching on video, you will notice that this looks a little different. Trying to move where I do these recordings to switch it up a little bit and make it a little bit better. And so here we are uh, in a new setting. I hope that's helpful. And today, in this amazing study through the New Testament, on the schedule, we come to 1 Corinthians 15. And, you know, I've said this a whole bunch of times, but I feel like I need to say it again because people get confused. I see comments a lot where people are confused. Um, We are following the curriculum that is made, uh, sorry, the curriculum schedule that is made by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is going through the New Testament this year. Last year, they went through the Old Testament. This year, New Testament in a year. There's a schedule that they put out for that, for their wards to go through. And so each local ward is is going through this in their Sunday school. Well, I am not following along with that curriculum. What I'm doing is looking at the schedule, and I'm providing some thoughts from a Bible church pastor's perspective. So not here as a Latter-day Saint. I'm here as a Bible church pastor, and I'm offering my thoughts on the passages that Latter-day Saints will be looking at this coming Sunday, or depending on how your ward does it. Maybe you went over this last Sunday, or maybe you're going over it two weeks from now. I don't know. But uh, for those interested, that's what I'm doing here. Okay. Wanted to clarify that uh, before anything else. And uh, I want to mention too, that this is just one of those really, really important chapters of the Bible that we're going to be looking at today. The schedule brings us to 1 Corinthians 15. And in this chapter, we are just going to really see some amazing stuff. But we're also going to see some places where the Latter-day Saint religion that is based off the, their prophet, Joseph Smith, they've really deviated from not just historical Christianity, but they've deviated from the Bible itself. And so we're looking at the words of the Bible. We want to engage with scripture, want to look at what the words on the page say, what God has revealed and preserved in the Bible. And we want to understand what he has said. And here in this chapter, that means we're going to have to confront head on a couple of places where we differ big time, where Christianity and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or Mormonism, where we just, we differ big time. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get into 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, it's the resurrection chapter. All right. That's, that's what this all is all about. And Paul says, starting in verse 1, I'll just start at the beginning of the chapter. This chapter is like 60 verses, so we're not going to read every verse straight through, but um, 1 Corinthians 15, 1, it says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. That's sweet. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. All right. So from the beginning, Paul here is setting the stage and he's saying, we're talking about the gospel. We're talking about the good news. We're talking about the message that saves you. The message of Jesus's work that saves you. 
So amazing stuff right from the beginning. We're talking about the gospel. We're talking about salvation. These are the most important issues that we could ever discuss, that anybody could ever discuss. And that's actually what Paul goes right on to say, starting in verse 3. In verse 3, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of, check out this phrasing, first importance. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he goes on to list the appearings of Christ after his resurrection and saying that he was appeared to last of all, that Jesus came to him last of all, because he is, look at this amazing humility. This is genuine humility. He's not just, you know, saying these things to try to make himself sound humble. He's truly humble. He says, I am the least of the apostles. I used to persecute the church of God. But one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Paul says, verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Wow. Whether then it was I or they, Paul says in verse 11, so we preach and so you believed. Well, if we were ever going to say what was of first importance in the Bible, what is the primary thing? What is the the top of the top when it comes to the, the big dog doctrines? What is most important? It has to be this, the gospel message, the good news, the proclamation of how we are saved. And Paul says that it's that Jesus died according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again according to the scriptures. It hones right in on the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel message. I like to ask people sometimes if I'm engaging with someone who is of a different faith, I'll say, well, what is your gospel? I want to know what you believe the good news is. And (laughs) I get some wild answers sometimes. Well, if you're a Christian and you believe what God has said, You look at this passage and you say, the gospel message is that Jesus died and rose again. It's very, very important that we get this. And his death and resurrection go hand in hand. Some people want the resurrection of Christ without focusing in on his death on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 says that he bore in his body our sins on the cross. So that's really, really important. His death, not just his bleeding out, not just his, uh, you know, being whipped and scourged and all of that, but his death. It's a substitute. This whole concept here is substitution. Life given for life. Jesus died in our place for our sins. The death that we deserve. Death. Not just the blood, but the death. He died. But then also you have to have resurrection. So just as you can't have resurrection without the death, you can't have the death without the resurrection. Because if Jesus died and did not rise again... Well, then what's the difference between Jesus and Muhammad or Jesus and, you know, fill in the blank with any kind of religious leader? Well, Jesus rose again. He had the power to raise up his own life. They destroyed that temple and he raised it up on the third day. All right. So really, really important that that we grasp that. But let's keep going because look at verse 12. When, When Paul says, 
Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, okay, that's the importance. We're putting the emphasis on resurrection. If Christ is preached that he's risen, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, these people among the Corinthians weren't necessarily saying that Christ didn't rise from the dead. They're saying that we as Christians will not rise from the dead, that there's no future resurrection for Christians. So Paul here is really, this is where he starts his logic, his, his line of reasoning. He's saying, look, if Christ is preached as being raised from the dead, why do some of you say that you are in Christ, but that you won't be raised from the dead, that, that you are in him and, uh, your future is bound up in him. And even though he's been resurrected, you won't be resurrected. Why are some of you talking that way? Paul is asking. He's tying the two things together. That's really important to remember because that's the theme here of what's, what's going on. He says, look, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If you're ruling out this concept of resurrection and saying, yeah, we, we can't be resurrected. That affects Christ. What affects you affects Christ in this scenario, in this situation. What effect, how, how Christ is affected affects you. If he's been raised, you will be raised. If you won't be raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And he goes on to say the importance of this, that if Christ has not been raised, our preaching's in vain, your faith is in vain, we are liars because we testified against God if the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, check this out. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Some people will say it doesn't matter if Christ was raised physically or just spiritually. Oh, it matters. If Christ has not been raised physically, your faith is worthless. And if that's the case, you are still in your sins. And those who have died in Christ, they're gone forever. And if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, if our only hope is Jesus Christ, then we are of all men most to be pitied. If Christ has not been raised and all of our hope is in him, we're fools. Verse 20, an amazing verse that answers this situation of we're pitiful. Well, Christ has been raised, verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. And then now he goes on to talk about the importance of the reality that Christ is resurrected and how that affects everything else. Okay. Now, um, now we're going to get into some interesting passages within this chapter, some places where there will be disagreement between Christians and Mormons or Latter-day Saints. One of those, of course, is the baptism uh, of the dead situation, or baptism for the dead, not baptism of the dead. Uh, that would be a whole different thing. But uh, being baptized by proxy on behalf of those who have died. There is one verse in the Bible that speaks of this practice, and it's here in 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, this one is a pretty... Actually, both of these issues are pretty simple to deal with. They're pretty straightforward issues. Uh, it can actually be uh, made out to be more complex than it actually is, all right? I think it's pretty straightforward. So um, consider with me here, 1 Corinthians 15, 29, as Paul is making his case that 
there will be a resurrection. That resurrection does exist. There will be a resurrection of believers. Part of his argument is this. Um, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, you who say there is no resurrection, if the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why, and that's verse 29, now verse 30, why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. And he goes on to explain more of his reasoning. But part of his reasoning, as I just read, is this concept of the living being baptized for the dead. If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? So this is the launching pad for the practice that is within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints of proxy baptism, where uh, you'll have someone baptized in the temple on behalf of someone who has died so that that dead person who is still alive in spirit in the spirit world, in spirit prison, uh, I guess that person would have to be in spirit prison. That person could then spiritually receive that baptism. That baptism gets applied to their account so as to put them out of prison, perhaps into spirit paradise and on the right track to inherit one of the three kingdoms, uh, heavenly kingdoms. And we'll talk about those heavenly kingdoms here momentarily also. That's a lot that I just said. And now the question is, is that what Paul was referring to here? Well, let me give you just a really basic uh, point as it comes to Bible interpretation or what we call hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is just the science or the art of interpreting the Bible. Here's a really basic point when it comes to hermeneutics. Let's look at the pronouns. Verse 29, um, he says, those at the beginning, he says, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? He goes on at the second half of that verse to say, if the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? So them is the dead here. These are people who are really not involved in the process of being baptized for the dead, other than the fact that um, they would be in the Mormon system, passive recipients. But dead people are dead people. Physically, they're, they're not being dug up and baptized. It's just like they're like names that people know people who have passed away and living people are being baptized for them. Okay. So that's established. Well, let's consider this other group of people, the living notice that Paul says they here. And at the first part of the verse, he says, those, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? We have those and we have they, why is that important to look at the pronouns? Well, um, that's a third person pronoun. If you're not an English my grammar person, like I can be sometimes, uh, that's important to recognize because Paul is not including himself in that group. If he was including himself in that group, it would sound like this. Otherwise, what will we do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are we baptized for them? But notice he doesn't say we, he says they. 
we would be first person, including Paul in this action, using third person, saying they or saying those. He's pointing outside of himself and he's pointing to a different group. He's also not using second person. Second person would be, you know, saying you all, you. That happens a lot through this letter. That happens a lot even in this very chapter. When Paul, imagine how differently this would be if Paul said, what will you do? you who are baptized for the dead. You could imagine Paul saying something like that, right? But he doesn't. He doesn't say that. If the dead are not raised at all, why then are you baptized for them? Notice he's not saying that either. So he's not including himself as someone who engages in this practice. He's not including the Corinthians as people who engage in this practice. He's saying that there's a different group out there that baptizes for the dead. Now let's just do a a quick little search. If you didn't know, Uh, This is a really handy tool, especially when it comes to looking for a specific word in your internet browser. You can press control F and search for the word we or whatever word you want to look for. You just type it in. So let's look for the the word we here where Paul is using the first person plural. We could also search for I, but every instance of the the word I would show us every instance of the letter I, uh, which would be quite a bit and then that would be confusing. But look at Paul here in verse 11, whether then it was I or they, talking about in this case when he says they, the other apostles, so we preach and so you believe. What a great verse, verse 11, as we think about pronouns. (laughs) Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Verse 15, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, Paul says, if there is no resurrection, because we testified. Verse 19, for if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Down in verse 30, so this is interesting. It's the very next verse. After talking about they, those, them, baptizing for the dead, He says, why are we also in danger every hour there in verse 30? So he switches from third person in verse 29 back to first person in verse 30. Okay, and then he even says, I die daily in verse 31. So he's using I and we in the verses that immediately follow him saying those and they. Um, What about you? Let's search for you in cases where he would say you all or, or you, talking in second person. Wow, this comes up a lot in this chapter. Uh, I make known to you, he says in verse 1, he's speaking of you all, second person plural, the church in Corinth, uh, the gospel that I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, you are saved, you hold fast, I preach to you unless you believed in vain. Look how many times he's using you here, and pretty much every case is going to be second person plural where he's referring to them. Well, again, notice verse 29, where he talks about baptism for the dead. He is not using second person plural. In verse 31, he does when he says, I affirm brethren by the boasting in you all, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. So he knows how to use first person plural. He knows how to use second person plural, obviously. And yet what does he do in verse 29 when he talks about baptism for the dead? He's using third person plural. Very important to recognize. A very, very simple but critical rule of biblical interpretation is you look at the pronouns. 
You look at prepositions, you look at pronouns, that'll really explain a lot to you as you read the Bible. So why on earth is Paul even bringing it up? If I, if I am now claiming by all this pronoun talk, if I'm claiming that Paul himself did not practice baptism for the dead, that he's not encouraging baptism for the dead, if he's uh, not saying that the Corinthians practice this or that he instructed them to practice this, if, if none of that is in view, then why on earth is Paul bringing it up? I would also add, before I answer that question, um, at the beginning of this letter in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except for a couple of names that he lists off. So when it comes to baptizing people, uh, Paul didn't even really do it in Corinth. So the idea that he would have instructed them to baptize for the dead seems pretty far-fetched. seems like a stretch, but I digress. Why is Paul bringing this up? Well, it seems to me that he is pulling from some instance in the culture of people baptizing for the dead in hope of the future resurrection. Those, whoever was doing it, whoever was baptizing for the dead was doing so because they believed that there was a future uh, for the dead person in resurrection. So do we have any detail about that? No, we don't. We just have this one verse. Paul doesn't even expand on this one verse within the chapter. You can read the 28 verses before it and the 28, 29 verses after it. There's no explanation of this. But it seems as though he's pointing to a group in that culture that must have been known to the Corinthians and obviously known to Paul that practiced baptism for the dead. And he was using it as a piece of evidence that pointed toward resurrection. These people are baptizing on behalf of the dead because they believe in a future resurrection. Now, apparently these people were misguided. There's nowhere in the apostolic instruction, the apostles of Jesus and the New Testament, there's nowhere in their letters where they instruct anybody to baptize on behalf of dead people. It's not in there. That's not a positive command for the church at all. However, in this case, as Paul is making a logical argument for the resurrection of Christ, this is one of the many things he points to in saying, look, there is a resurrection because look at these people. They're even baptizing on behalf of the dead in hope of the resurrection. Maybe it was a group that had some truth, but not all truth. Maybe it was a group that wasn't claiming to be Christian at all. But Paul is saying, look, based on the fact that they're human beings with a God-given conscience, they know that this life isn't all that there is and there will be resurrection. That is evidence that even the world knows that there will be a resurrection. Even the world, even, even many, many lost people know that this life isn't it, isn't all that there is, but there is more to come. That's what it seems, uh, Paul is doing in this passage to, to go beyond that and to say, look, actually Paul is bringing this up because he instructs the church along with the other apostles and the Lord Jesus himself to baptize on behalf of dead people who are given a second chance after death to receive salvation so that they can have baptism added to their account as a works-based salvation that would then get them into good standing with God. That is adding so much to what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15. And frankly, it's adding so much to the gospel because the gospel is not our baptism. The gospel, the good news, is Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, that we may be made right with God by faith in Christ alone. That's the gospel. So um, you really have to, to, to look at what Joseph Smith did here, uh, what, what the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has done 
with this verse and say that's that's abuse of the Bible. That's mangling the Bible. That is going so far beyond what the intention is in this one verse in the context of this chapter. Okay? So um, there's thing number one to think about <laughs> as far as our disagreements go. But there's more. Uh, because farther down in the chapter, Paul is beginning to explain uh, more about the resurrection and the difference in resurrection bodies compared to the bodies that we have now. And so uh, let's go to verse 35. Starting in verse 35, Paul writes, But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool. Ooh, harsh language from the apostle. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds of a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. All right, let's stop right there. What is he doing? He's talking about the kind of body, that's the initial question, the kind of body that a resurrected person has. So um, he goes to other examples. He says, look at, look at the flesh that we have. There's a flesh of men, mankind, human beings. We have a type of body, a kind of body that is unique to human beings, right? Well, then there's a, the flesh of beasts. The flesh of beasts. Uh, how's that different? Well, some of them have hooves. And they walk on four, all fours. Uh, they're hairy or they have feathers or whatever. Um, well, he goes on to talk about birds. So they're, they're hairy, they're fuzzy. Um, they, they're just different. I mean, that's obvious. A human being is not an ox. Okay. Different flesh. And then says the same with birds and fish. Now, so now we can talk about feathers and scales. We can talk about being wall-eyed or having your eyes in the front of your face. There's a difference in the kinds of bodies, even the living bodies. Okay. So Paul is just laying down a real base point here in saying, look, uh, there are different kinds of bodies on the face of the earth. Well, then he goes on to say in verse 40, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. So continuing to describe the difference between our current fallen bodies and our future resurrected glorified bodies, he says that, look, you've got the glory of the heavenly. Whoa, didn't mean to do that. Selected too much. The glory of the heavenly and the glory of the earthly. So what is that talking about? Heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. Well, he could be making reference to angels and human beings because angels are not human beings. Angels are not glorified humans. Angels are actually a different creature altogether, not made in the image of God, but in current rank, angels are above human beings because it says that when Jesus was incarnate, when Jesus took on a human body, that for a little while he was made lower than the angels. So angels have a spiritual body. They're not made in the image of God, but their spiritual body ranks higher than human bodies because it's different than human bodies for the moment. Well, he, so he could be talking about that. He could also be talking about um, the celestial 
bodies like the sun, moon, and stars that he's going to talk about in the next verse. He could be making reference to the lights that we have on earth versus the lights that we see in the sky. There's no doubt about it. Even back then when they didn't have all the scientific advancements like we have today, there was no doubt that the sun was much brighter in glory than a candle. Just no doubt about it. So there's a, there's a difference in glory between heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, whether you take the angel route or the lights route. Okay. Now he continues to describe the difference between the, the glory of one thing and the glory of another, or the difference between the kind of one thing and the kind of another in the next verse, where he says in verse 41, there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for star differs from star in glory. And I love that. I mean, that often gets forgotten at the end of this verse. Not only do we have sun, moon, and stars with different levels of brightness as we perceive it here on earth, but we even have stars differing from stars. And how many stars are there? Well, they were much more in tune than the common man today. The common man back then was much more in tune than we are today with how many stars there are because there was hardly any light pollution back then. Whereas today there's light pollution all over the place. We've got uh, all kinds of street lights and the cities everywhere that make it really difficult to see all the stars in the sky. But if you've ever been somewhere camping, you've been out on the mountain in the mountains, out in the woods somewhere, getting away from all the light pollution, you look up into the sky and you can even see like the difference in the darkness too, where, uh, there are some areas where it's like you see stardust or, or the clouds that are out there among the stars. And of course, between the stars, they differ from one another in glory. So Paul here has used the examples of four different kinds of flesh, human beings, beasts, birds, fish. He's used the difference uh, of the two types of heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. He's used the distinction between three types of lights in the sky, sun, moon, and stars. And he's used the distinction of, I don't know, almost countless stars in the sky where stars differ from stars in glory. So he's hit it on a level of just two things. He's hit it on a level of three things. He's hit it on a level of four things. And he's hit it on a level of virtually countless things with star differing from star in glory. And his whole point in all of this is that, um, we will have a different body in the resurrection than we have now. It will be a glorified body. And that should not be hard for someone to grasp because the Corinthians, some of them were asking the question, well, okay, if we're going to be resurrected, then what kind of body do we have? Answer me that one. Huh? Paul, can you answer that? I mean, this human body, I mean, obviously there's just one human body. So what are we going to come back as, you know, transformers? They didn't say transformers, but they were asking this question in like a mocking way, weren't they? What kind of body will they come back in? That's why Paul answers them so strongly and say, you fool, look around. There are different types of bodies right now. How is it hard to believe that we will have a different kind of body when we are resurrected in glory? That's the point. Well, what the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints does with this passage based on Doctrine and Covenant 76, which we'll look at here in a moment, is they take this verse, verse 41, that there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars to mean that in the resurrection, there are three specific types of glorification that a person can experience. 
related to the three levels or the three kingdoms of heaven, the celestial kingdom, the terrestrial kingdom, and the telestial kingdom. And actually Joseph Smith in his translation, quote unquote, translation of first Corinthians 15, he actually went in and added the word telestial in here where it says, you know, there's the uh, heavenly body. I think in the King James, it says celestial body and the terrestrial body in verse 40. And then he added, there's also the telestial body because he wanted to get the whole three kingdoms thing going here in verse 40 before he threw down his interpretation of verse 41. But to think that Paul is all of a sudden now talking about three kingdoms of heaven, and he's talking about three specific kinds of resurrected glory is really to just blow up the context here. As I stated, Paul uses in verse 40, two types of glory, heavenly and earthly. In verse 41, he uses three types of glory, the first part of verse 41. In verse 39, he uses four types or four kinds of bodies. In the end of verse 41, 41b, he's using countless types of glory, countless kinds. So to say that there are three specific kingdoms of heaven that Paul has in view here, that he's referencing three kinds of glory related to three levels of heaven is really just to cherry pick one example that he has out of the four examples he uses and run with it and, and make it say more than Paul was ever trying to say. I, I find it interesting. Like what if Joseph Smith would have used the end of verse 41 instead of the beginning of verse 41, but the end of verse 41 and just say, you know, Hey, there are countless kinds of heavenly kingdoms, just as there are countless stars there are countless heavenly kingdoms. There are countless degrees of glory. As star differs from star in glory, so every human being in the resurrection will differ from, from each other in glory. I mean, he, he could have said that, right? I mean, that would be consistent. But instead, he picks out the, the three kingdom thing, which I find interesting. Um, well, let's look at what Doctrine and Covenant 76 says. And I haven't read this for quite a while, so I'm going to be kind of reacting on the fly here. But Doctrine and Covenants... 76, starting at verse 70, this is the revelation that Joseph Smith has uh, tied to 1 Corinthians 15. These are they whose bodies are celestial, whose glory is that of the sun, even the glory of God, the highest of all, whose glory the sun of the firmament is written of as being typical. And again, we saw the terrestrial world, and behold, and lo, these are they who are of the terrestrial, whose glory differs from that of the church of the firstborn, who have received the fullness of the Father, even as that of the moon differs from the sun of the firmament, in the firmament. Behold, these are they who died without law, and also they who are the spirits of men kept in prison, whom the Son visited and preached the gospel unto them, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, who received not the testimony of Jesus in the flesh, but afterwards received it. These are they who are honorable men of the earth, who were blinded by the craftiness of men. These are they who receive of his glory, but not of his fullness." These are they who receive the presence of the Son, but not of the fullness of the Father. Wherefore, they are bodies terrestrial, and not bodies celestial, and differ in glory as the moon differs from the sun. 
These are they who are not valiant in the testimony of Jesus, wherefore they obtain not the crown over the kingdom of our God. And now this is the end of the vision which we saw of the terrestrial that the Lord commanded us to write while we were yet in the spirit. And again, we saw the glory of the telestial. Sorry, wanted to emphasize the difference between terrestrial and telestial and kind of did that wrong. This is the glory of the telestial, which glory is that of the lesser, even as the glory of the stars differs from the, that of the glory of the moon and the firmament. These are they who receive not the gospel of Christ, neither the testimony of Jesus. These are they who deny not the Holy Spirit. These are they who are thrust down to hell. Interesting. These are they who shall not be redeemed from the devil until the last resurrection, until the Lord, even Christ, the lamb shall have finished his work. These are they who receive not of his fullness in the eternal world, but of the Holy Spirit through the ministration of the terrestrial and the terrestrial through the ministration of the celestial. And also the telestial receive it of the administering of angels who are appointed to minister for them or who are appointed to be ministering spirits for them, for they shall be heirs of salvation. And thus we saw in the heavenly vision the glory of the telestial, which surpasses all understanding, and no man knows it except him to whom God has revealed it. And thus we saw the glory of the terrestrial, which excels in all things, the glory of the telestial, even in glory and in power and in might and in dominion. And thus we saw the glory of the celestial, which excels in all things, where God, even the Father, reigns upon his throne forever and ever. Okay, I got to stop. That was just a lot of words that sound the same. (laughs) Well, what is going on there? Um, it, it takes a while to read that and to understand it and to really grasp what's being said. But uh, thankfully, there have been Mormons, Latter-day Saints, who have written on that since this time and who have written in uh, plain, common sense English in ways that help us to understand uh, what was being described. But basically, there's a celestial kingdom where Heavenly Father is. In that celestial kingdom, uh, you can get there if you do all that you're told to do within the uh, system of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Then there's a a middle kingdom called the terrestrial kingdom, and that's where the sun is. You can go and you can be, you can experience Jesus basically, but you can't have access to the Father uh, like those in the celestial kingdom. And then there's the telestial kingdom, Telestial, that's how I want to say that, Telestial kingdom, where the Holy Spirit comes. And these are people who are in the worst spot, basically, other than those who are in outer darkness. Um, they're, they're terrible people. And it says elsewhere that these are the worst of the worst, essentially. These are rapists and murderers. These are people who have denied God. These are just really terrible people. But they are there in the Telestial kingdom. So you've got these three levels, and everybody ends up going there except for those who end up in outer darkness, but it's the vast majority of people. So like the telestial kingdom, I would think in this system, as it's written out in Doctrine and Covenants, that Hitler would be there. I mean, I would say many Latter-day Saints today would deny that, but I don't know how you would get around that from Doctrine and Covenants. But, uh, you know, your serial killers, whatnot, they're all going to be in the telestial kingdom. These are people who um, are resurrected to a different degree of glory than others. And... They, they're not going to 
suffer eternal punishment. They're not going to suffer the eternal wrath of God against their sin, but instead they're going to get heavenly bliss. Uh, the celestial kingdom, Joseph Smith said, is just beyond anything we could ever imagine. Words can't even describe how great that bottom kingdom is. But of course, within the Latter-day Saint system, you can work your way up to the top and you can become a god of your own one day uh, by going to the celestial kingdom and, and following all the commandments that you're given in the church. So now I think this is appropriate time to pause and say, did Paul have any of that in view in 1 Corinthians 15? <laughs> I would imagine the typical Latter-day Saint response would be, well, no, he didn't, but this is further revelation. This is another testament of Jesus Christ that expands upon that. Well, the problem with that is that it actually goes against what Paul is saying. It goes against what Paul has described. Even in 1 Corinthians, just sticking with this letter, go to 1 Corinthians 6, where it says that idolaters, fornicators, homosexuals, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so to say, actually, there are three kingdoms, and in the bottom kingdom are people who reject Jesus and who have sinned really bad, and they're going to inherit a kingdom. They're going to inherit a kingdom of God. It's the lowest kingdom of God, but it's not hell. It's not eternal punishment. It's not eternal wrath. They're going to inherit that. Well, that's totally disagreeing with what Paul has said. It's not an expanding upon what, what Paul has said, or what more appropriately, what God has said through the Apostle Paul. It's not an expansion of what is being said in 1 Corinthians. It's a contradiction. Paul here is not presenting three levels of heaven. He's not presenting three different types of glorified resurrection. He here is describing that there will be a, a resurrection in glory for believers in Christ. And it's going, there's a difference between the earthly body that they have now and the body that they will have in glory. That's simply what he's saying. So to force into that an entire system of three levels of heaven and working to get to the different levels that you are basically uh, told to exalt yourself through your own works in this system, to put all of that into what Paul is saying is really unethical. Uh, okay, this is uh, actually um, really taking God's word and mauling it. It's tearing it up. It's twisting it. it it's unethical. It's wrong. It's sinful. It's evil. It's wicked to do that. Now, um, those are some pretty strong words. I'm, I'm putting that pretty strongly, but I, I mean it. It's absolutely wrong to do that. Um, that is not what Paul had in mind. That to, to say that what Joseph Smith said God told him jives with what Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians is just nonsensical. And uh, it's, it's incredibly wrong. All right. So I wanted to make that clear as we had time here looking at 1 Corinthians 15. But I don't want to end there. I want to end with something more positive. I want to end with uh, something that actually puts us all thinking in the right direction. Um, not just this like us versus them stuff, which I know Latter-day Saints really don't like. I know that a lot of people just really want to avoid the us versus them stuff, and that's fine. Um, except we, we have to say that there are, there's truth out there and that means there are lies out there and we have to really combat the, the lies with the truth that God gives us. So let's end with some good truth, okay? Let, that's what I'm trying to say. Let's end with something that's really positive. At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, uh, finishing up his thoughts on the resurrection, Paul says, I'll start in verse 50. I need to adjust my microphone a little bit. There we go. Verse 50. 
Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Great stuff. Great, great stuff. Christ has been raised from the dead. He died in our place for our sins. He rose again that we might be made right with him forever based on faith in his work alone, not bringing any of our stuff to the table, not bringing a baptism to the table, not bringing striving to keep commandments to the table, none of that, but recognizing that outside of ourselves, the price was paid outside of ourselves. All was taken care of as it pertains to our sin, as it pertains to our righteousness. Christ's act of righteousness, his dying for us, loving us, his enemies, so much that he would die in our place for our sins. And rising again, this act of Christ now makes it, 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 makes it possible for us to be reconciled to God forever. And because he is risen, we will be risen. Because he has defeated death, we will defeat death. We will crush Satan under our feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet, it says in Romans 16. We have this hope. We have this certainty because of what Christ has done. And it is not just good news. It's the best news. It's the best news. It truly is. And so if you're listening to this as a Latter-day Saint, I hope this has helped you get to the point of really questioning what you've been taught because what the church has done, the church, quote, unquote, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, what the church has done to 1 Corinthians 15 is criminal. It's criminal. There's just no two ways about it. However, that doesn't have to be your view of 1 Corinthians 15. Your view can be the appropriate one which is embracing what God has said in his word through the apostle Paul, embracing the inspired words of God and hoping in Christ's finished work alone. If Christ hasn't been raised, then hoping in him only, well, that's a foolish thing to do. That's what Paul says at the beginning of the chapter. You you should be pitied if you hope in Christ only. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, hoping in him only, can only lead to life because Jesus is alive and in him you will be too eternally. You will live forever enjoying the glory of God. He will get all the glory. He will get all the honor. He will get all the praise for eternity and he will be your joy now and forevermore. 
if you trust in Christ alone. Thanks for listening today. I hope this has helped you to uh, think a little bit about things that maybe you've not considered before. And may God bless your study of his word. May God give you uh, a new heart, cause you to be born again to a living hope. If you have any questions at all, please reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Lord bless.